Hi, everyone. I'm Blake Bartlett, and I'm a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in software companies and help them grow faster. This season on the Build podcast, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with operators to hear firsthand how they've put their product at the center of user acquisition, conversion, and expansion. Now, on with the show. Today's episode is all about sales. In this episode, we'll hear from Chris Savage, co-founder and CEO of Wistia, and about how his view of sales has evolved over time and the right way to think about sales in the context of a product-like growth model. Well, Chris, thanks so much for uh, coming on the Build podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. So I have a personal question for you to start. You are a millennial, correct? Technically, I believe I'm a, a millennial, um, but although I, I think my section of being a millennial, I'm described as a cusper. A cusper? So how old are you? 35. And I am 33, so I guess this means I have to respect you as my elder now, right? Yes, that is what the- <laughs> <laughs> Well, I bring this up because uh, you are a strange millennial in the sense that you've had one job ever. <laughs> Basically, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is founder and CEO of Wistia. That's right. So give us a little bit of that story. What is Wistia and why have you only had one job? Give us this background. Yeah. So Wistia is a company. We're based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We make software to help people communicate better with video. We have two products and we started 12 and a half years ago. Our first product basically helps companies understand how the videos on their website are performing, customize that experience. It's a really, really easy way for somebody to market better with video on their website. And then about 18 months ago, we launched our second product, which is called Soapbox. And Soapbox is a Chrome extension that allows you to record your webcam and your screen simultaneously. And then you can add transitions so you can make something that looks really professional very quickly. And that's designed for people who don't have experience making videos every day. So all things video, and I know that, you know, it's kind of evolved over time. And, you know, I know that there were other predecessors in the video space kind of prior to you. So what makes Wistia unique, both in your space and then just kind of broadly and more generally as a company? So in our space, we're really focused on small and medium-sized businesses. And that means that our products have to be self-service by default, really easy to use. We are constantly evolving them and constantly innovating. I think in terms of the company, we only ever raised angel money. So we raised $1.4 million in angel financing in total in 2008 and 2010. Then we actually bought out our investors about a year ago. And so we're just a different type of business. We're profitable and proud. I think that lets us as a company just do some different things. Like we can take different types of creative risks. At least in my experience, being profitable allows us to take risks where we believe that we're going to get a long-term return. And you kind of look at a project or look at a feature and you say, you know, what is the return this gave us, gives us this month or next month? And I, we can do a lot of things where we don't know. We just believe in the long term they'll be valuable. We could be wrong, we're screwed, or we're right and we win. But at least for us, running, being, running profitably has been important. Yeah, and also the independent element of having bought out your investors also gives you the flexibility to do what you think makes the most sense on the right timetable for your customers and just based on the company that you guys want to build as opposed to achieving any other sort of outside goals for investors, shareholders, whatever it may be, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to we get to prioritize the employee experience and the customer experience 
in front of short-term revenue growth. And it doesn't mean that we're not trying to optimize long-term revenue growth. We are, but it means that in those hard calls or moments or things where you want to make a values-based decision, you can, you can do that and not worry as much like, oh, does this affect our enterprise value? We're not optimizing for that, so it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, um, talking a bit about the customer journey, how do customers or how do users, how do people discover Wistia in the first place? So the, the main way that people discover us has been through content. So over the years, we've written thousands of blog posts and made thousands of videos teaching people how to use video better in their marketing, how to get comfortable shooting video at work, how to get comfortable using video for your brand. Video can be really scary. And often we talk to companies that want to use video, but they're afraid that the wrong video will hurt their brand. And it will. And so for that reason, it's actually presented an opportunity where we can make a lot of content, teach people about those different things. So that is usually how people hear about us is through the content and word of mouth around the content. And then those people who are super fans or actually have the problems that our products solve, find their way to discover Wistia and Soapbox. Yeah, I think the thing from, you know, just seeing your content over the years that that jumps out to me is that it, it it's actually helpful, right? It's not sort of fake helpful. It's not like a listicle of like the top 10 ways to do X, which is really just something to sort of capture SEO or, or get somebody to fill out a form. This is how to content on a task, like you said, that video can be daunting, video can be scary. I've never done it before. I'm a marketing manager at my company. How do I do this on a budget, but still make it look good? Wistia has everything you need both in terms of written content, but then also video. I mean, it's kind of uh, both a show, don't tell, and a tell, <laughs> you know, to give the educational component of it. So, you know, adding value to people before they're even a user of your product is definitely a powerful approach to engender that goodwill. Yeah, we found it to be incredibly powerful and also scary in the early days because, you know, we, we taught one of the most popular early videos we made was how to take a conference room and turn it into a studio. So, the idea being if it's if you have a studio, it's much easier to shoot than it reduces the friction of making videos. And so we did that and we saw tons of people replicate this studio and they would take pictures of it and be like, I just made the Wistia studio, take a look. And we, you know, it'd be them in front of this gray screen with all the three lights and the camera in position and everything. And that felt really good. And then they would put their videos on YouTube and you're like, God damn it, like what just happened? And it took a while to realize that actually the long-term game for us is like continuing to teach and people won't necessarily even use our product always. But if we can do a good enough job and build a big enough audience around the content, then people can discover the way that Wistia fits in and which problems the product solves. And it was funny because it was not immediately obvious the connection. You know, we had to make the audience big enough before it's like, oh, of course, like, of course, that's a smart strategy. It's really over the long term that it's easy to see that. And now, so after somebody discovers you, whether it's through content or whatever it may be, they will ultimately make a decision to go, you know, to try out the product and the product is self-serve. I guess walk us through a little bit on sort of the self-serve funnel. What causes somebody to go from, I'm reading your content, I'm learning how to do video to then converting to actually becoming a Wistia customer? What drives that that motion? Yeah, it's, it's basically someone realizes that the videos on their website could be working harder for them, either because they're either using another tool or they're not, they don't have videos on their website yet, but Let's say they're using another tool and the default is YouTube because no one gets fired for getting for using YouTube. There's the YouTube is the second largest search engine, and so you don't get a lot of complaints around it. And it isn't until you realize that people are hitting your website and those people you paid money to get them there, or they came there because of word of mouth. And so they're actually, you know, they're they're low in your funnel, 
and then they watch a video about your product or company because that's the type of thing you're gonna have on your website. And then at the end, they see your competitors' products or comp- like competitive companies on your website. And it's like, huh, that's a funny interaction that as a marketer, maybe I should take control over. And so a lot of it is just that initial realization that how the player looks and feels and, and the flow that a visitor has to your website matters. We then also see once people start to get more data oriented around their marketing and trying to understand what bounce rates look like, what conversion rates look like, how to optimize funnels, that you're just going to want more data and you're going to want to integrate the video viewing data along with your other marketing data. So that's another main reason that people will decide to give Wistia a shot. And we always felt like we like to buy products by judging them ourselves. And so we should let people judge Wistia itself by having a free plan. She'll get in there and try it. It was funny because in the early days, we just had a free trial. And the problem we ran into was people wouldn't commit to it enough because they thought like, I'm not going to change a video on my website and leave it up there for two weeks. And then if if the trial ends, the video is going to come down. That's a pretty crappy experience. But if it's a free plan, which it is, you can put one video up and you never have to take it down. And so if it's one video on a blog post or it's one video on one landing page or something, you can actually try it for real. And if you decide to become a paying customer, fantastic. If you have more videos and a bigger audience, you want more controls and stuff. But if you don't, that's okay too. So I think that also ended up creating this situation where the people who do sign up understand the value of why they're getting Wistia in a different way. And therefore, you know, a lot of our metrics around churn and things are just, they're, I think, better than they would be otherwise. And has it been self-service since day one? It has not. So, I mean, the very early days... You could only do a demo and we would have to go in and create the accounts for people and we couldn't take a credit card. So we were closing deals over the phone and faxing stuff back and forth. Part of being a customer is that you know what a fax machine is. (laughs) The glory days of 2006, right? Yes, the glory (laughs) days. And then over time, we evolved to having a free trial. We ran into some of those issues I was just telling you about. And then we kind of felt like we knew what customers, like what the right upgrade path would be. And so we felt comfortable taking a risk with adding a free plan. And we added a free plan after the business, after we've been in business, I think seven years. And it instantly increased the number of people trying the product and ended up being phenomenal for us. And what have you guys done on that self-service funnel and that flow for the user? What, what have you done to sort of improve that and change that over the years? We have done so much, it's crazy. We have reworked the onboarding flow many, many, many times. I think it's probably been redone in its entirety, like six or eight times we've done a huge number of different tests like we kind of know the things that the the people who end up purchasing we know what they end up doing and so trying to get everyone to do those things uploading videos seeing the video after it's uploaded really simple stuff like that we've tried things like giving borrow you could borrow a video from us to put in your account so you could show somebody else who knew an actual risk putting your own video in and yeah like getting onboarding right i would say it's still not right we're still constantly evolving it but it's very important in uh, a self-service business. And who owns that onboarding flow, for example? Is that is there like a, do you guys have a growth team or sort of growth engineers that, that own things like conversion and, and funnel metrics? Or is that just a component of marketing or component of product? Like, how do you guys tackle that? Yeah, so we have had a, a growth team in the past and called it different things. It's all a part of like the marketing for Wistia. 
And the way that WIST is organized, we have two different cross-functional teams and there's a GM for each team. And on each cross-functional product team, there is a product manager, product marketer, engineering, design, research. So we did this so that it would feel like there's many companies in Wistia which could move faster, knew how to make their own decisions, and had all the tools to get the job done. So the growth is owned really by that team. So there is someone who's like more tasked with looking at that stuff and more tasked at looking at onboarding flows and lifecycle emails and stuff like that. But that cross-functional team will look at that as an opportunity and say like, yes, this is important. Let's go do more of that stuff. Or actually things are in good shape. Let's go put more of our effort into building new products. Got it. So there's there's growth that is a component of the marketing team and the marketing function, thinking about conversion rates and stuff like that. But then there's also kind of growth is decentralized in the sense that it's embedded as an expectation into each product squad as well. Yeah. Like I think we when in the early days of Wistia, all that stuff was just like a mishmash, right? And that, part of the thing that was really good about that is if you were trying to figure out what to build, the people who were building the product could see if we don't get enough people trying this, there's no point in building the product. And so they would redirect their own resources towards helping with that. But as we got bigger, it got hard to figure out how to let that like that flow happen really effortlessly. And when we found our way to these cross-functional product teams, it came back. And so, you know, if the if that team decided the most important thing was onboarding, then they might spend four or five months just doing onboarding. But they might also do that and then set up some tests, which happens often, and then say, actually, we should put our efforts more towards building new types of new features or updating old things or trying to push ourselves to do more differentiated stuff. They're they're kind of in control. And then part of the key to that team is having research on there. And so they're constantly talking to sales and support internally. They're talking to external customers, beta customers, people who are not listed customers but use competitive products, and people who don't even know what's going, like have never used Wistia or a competitive product. So we have this this mix of customer research, which is coming back and influencing those decisions, which we found to be incredibly helpful. And I'm curious to understand in this flow, in this user journey, customer journey, we've been talking a lot about the self-service components, about how you will then optimize that flow in the product itself in a touchless model. But I know that people also get involved in your funnel and in your process at different points. So, you know, when does a salesperson get involved? When does a salesperson not get involved? How is that different to the role of support and success and kind of all the people that are customer facing? Yeah. So the vast, vast majority of our sales is responding to inbound requests. So it's people who are writing in saying like, I want these features or I have a bigger library of videos or I, I like something more complex. And our sales team is talking with all of them and doing demos and walking them through how they can best use Wistia. If you have a giant library of content or you have a really complicated marketing data model that you want to include like your Wistia data in. So the sales team is on people who are not yet customers and we kind of know that certain features in Wistia are more powerful but more complex. And so talking to someone in sales is more helpful to helping that person get up and running and figure out the best way to do that. And over the years, we've had things, some things that, you know, kind of basically using a PQL model, 
but not a formal one. We'd have people who would come in and say, like, would be interested in some part of the product. And we'd have them talk to sales and we'd realize that actually that part of the product could be made so simple that it could just be exposed through onboarding for self-service. And so it's this constant discussion around where those, those features should live. And then success is helping existing customers make sure that they are using the product properly, getting enough value out of it, have champions inside the companies that we work with, and supporters responding to all technical support, general product support, anything that someone wants to write into, whether they talk to sales or not. I mean, the majority of people we're talking to there are, are self-service. And we do support for our free and paid products. And so that's Soapbox, free and paid, Wistia, free and paid. And it's, it's set up to be more reactive. And what they're doing is trying to understand, look, what are the trends that are coming up and what are the things we should be fixing the product versus updating a knowledge base versus having a consistent video series for or whatever we need to do to, to help customers find answers to questions faster. And one thing that I hear from folks that are pursuing a product-led growth model like Wistia, when you are starting to tackle something like sales, the, the inevitable question, when you have a really big top of the funnel and a large user base, that's also a pretty diverse base of users and customers, the challenge becomes, all right, well, when do and how do I figure out when the salesperson gets involved and when they don't? And that who do I leave on the self-service path and who do I sort of come into to provide that assist if they need that support? So for you guys, I mean, you have free users of both products. You have a single freelancer could be a customer. You could have a large enterprise that's a customer. They could start large, they could start small and kind of grow over time. So, and then it's across all industries and, you know, you name it in terms of diversity. So how do you figure out kind of when to get a salesperson involved and when to leave it on self-serve? I think what we've learned, a couple things. Like, So when we introduced sales, which was probably two and a half, three years ago at this point, we had no, no sales team before that. It was totally self-service. But when we introduced a sales team, one of the things that's funny about that is instantly you have some customers who are now talking to sales who would have just been self-service. And that was confusing because you look at the total number of new customers a month and it's like total number of self new self-service customers a month went down slightly. And everyone's like, oh my God, is this the right thing? And of course, what ends up happening is just and the reason we introduced sales in the first place, we realized there's all these people who want to talk to us about these types of questions, questions that you would have before using a product, and we're not able to give them any good answers. So they're actually having a terrible customer experience. And we thought if we can introduce sales and do it in a really relationship-driven way, we can create a much better customer experience for all of those people who are asking questions, whether or not they become a customer. And so that was an important lesson. And then the... the handoff between what should be in sales and what should be self-service really comes down to how complex it is. And there are some things that are in self-service, but for some people, they find them complex, so they want to talk to someone about it. And we just try to make it really easy to get in touch. And so whether you are chatting with us on the site or submitting an email and setting up a time to have a call or whatever it is, we just we, the vision is that we can really, really quickly get you answers to the questions you have and... If you're going to be better served by using Wistia, fantastic. And if you're not, that's okay too. At least we answered the questions quickly and tried to do it in a good Wistia brandy way, such that maybe down the road, you'll want to use Wistia or you'll tell others who you think would be a better fit for us. And you touched on it a good bit there, kind of in terms of your evolution with sales over time. You know, you, you added sales about two, two and a half years ago. So I, I'd love to go back to that sort of that journey. I think, you know, when you and I first met, 
it's probably about six, seven years ago, we started talking about, I asked you about sales, you know, is Wistia ever going to do sales in the future? And, you know, you were not not the biggest fan of sales <laughs> back then, <laughs> perhaps even anti-sales, I, I might use the word back then. So w- walk through why you were sort of not a fan of sales initially, and then what changed your mind? I would say there was like two reasons why I was not a fan. One is that you know, when you're building something, you sometimes need religious beliefs about certain aspects of what you're building. And so we'd had some sales in the early days that was me and one other guy and that was huge. But then we realized when we, we realized that small and medium-sized customers were our companies were our best customers. But for them, we'd have to have the price of the product be lower. And so to do that, we would need to take sales out of the mix. And to do that, we would need to be religious around making the product easier to use and making onboarding really clear and making our pricing really fair and all of these things that we spent years just optimizing and trying to do that. And so we had this like religious passion for that. And so I had trouble seeing anything that didn't align with that religious belief. The other reason was that I was immature. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I feel like it's that simple. Like it's sometimes you just, you can like to believe that the world is black and white and it's all, it's all gray. And of course, there's a version of sales that we were even doing back then. And back then, it was showing up in our support, but I didn't realize that. And then, of course, there's a version of sales that's actually a fantastic version for Wistia, which I'm thankful that we found. But it was just thinking that there were there would be a black and white when, in fact, there it's it's all gray. And I know something that uh, you and I have talked about uh, in the past, and I've heard other folks on your team reference is this concept of of doing sales in a Wistia way. And that that was also something that helped you get more comfortable with the the idea of doing sales. So what does that mean, doing sales in a Wistia way? Yeah, it means that the it's not just about the each individual sale. We believe that sales is part of the brand experience. And when done properly, we will help someone figure out if they're the right fit for Wistia and they'll sign up and be a customer. And if they're not the right fit, we won't force it. We'll not sell something to somebody that they don't need. We'll not sell something to somebody that doesn't work. We'll, we will be trans, so transparent with customers that if a direct competitor is a better fit, we'll say that. And the belief there is that that honesty and that authenticity is creates a much better customer experience and that people will trust us over the long term and we may lose some deals in the short term because we're up against like a high-pressure sales org. But in the long term, we think we'll win them because – people will come back or will still get word of mouth from somebody who didn't actually pick us as a, as their choice as a customer. And so, you know, I would liken it to how the experience of walking to the Apple store feels like where if you walk into the Apple store, the first question they ask you is like, what do you need help with? And your answer could be my iPhone's not charging. I want to buy a watch. I want to look at computers. I'm here for training. I'm here for technical support. Whatever your answer is, they quickly get you to somebody who's an expert in that area without you even feeling like it took that long. The person helps answer all your questions. They're not very salesy at all. But what they do do is they teach you a lot of stuff. And if the reason your phone isn't charging is because there's lint in the charging port, they'll take the lint out for you. And they won't charge you. And so you're left with this feeling of trust, which is like, well, when I buy Apple products, I can always walk into the store and I trust I'll get my, my questions answered quickly and so whether you're buying today or you've bought lots of products in the past or you come back in to fix a phone, you end up buying a watch while you're there, it's this seamless, really easy, really delightful customer experience for everybody. And they, they think of customers not as people who 
have only bought their products, but they think of customers as people who might someday buy a product. I think we try to think about it in a similar way. We're always working to do better, but that's how we try to do it. And I think that's worked out well. Yeah. And, and I know that when I speak with product-led growth founders, especially if it's a founder who as an individual is more product-oriented themselves, especially if that person's an engineer and they're building a self-service model, there can be this aversion to sales because it's kind of the, the negative connotation of sales is that it's people that are going to show up at your office, perhaps be pushy, you know, convince you to do something that you don't want to do. I mean, everybody goes to the worst possible experience, like, you know, a used car salesman or something like that, but it doesn't have to be that way. There's not one flavor of sales. And the flavor of sales that you're describing, I mean, to me, it sounds sounds a lot more like customer success. Is that kind of how you guys think about it? Or wh- where are the similarities and differences there? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I think about it as just like, what are your values? You know, like the thing that you're, when you're asked before, like I was afraid of sales and thought we shouldn't do it. And I was immature. I was immature because I didn't really realize that what we should say is, well, we want sales to be done in a way that aligns their values. And our values are the opposite of how a used car salesman would treat you or the sigma of what that person is. And so it'll be great. And that's just the reality is like, it's just, are you compromising your values when you're making new and tough decisions or going after new opportunities? If you're not compromising your values, you'll be fine. And I think that's true for almost everything. Like one of the other things I hear people struggle with because they ask me, like I've talked to many other companies who have asked me about this thing that are early stages. Like, what do I do if I have to hire a manager above people who are in my company? Like, won't they just like be like, won't that suck? And it means that like, there's no growth for those people or whatever. And the answer is like, it depends on how you do it and who you find. Like people want to work for fantastic managers. And if you find fantastic managers, everyone who reports them grows faster and they do better work. And it's just a cultural thing of like, don't compromise your values when you, when you make a call like that. And suddenly people will be asking you that they say that they want a new manager, you know, that they're excited for someone to come in from outside. It's so much, this just comes back to values. And so yeah, is our sales like customer success? Like maybe it is like customer success elsewhere. I don't even know what the perfect definition is. I just know that we think about it as part of the customer experience and it's the that experience for people who are not yet using our products. But we think maybe someday they will. And even if they don't, we still want them to leave feeling good about their experience with Wistia. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that it kind of speaks to me that it's uh, a need to, you know, kind of resist the natural human tendency to view things through the negative lens of what could go wrong. Instead, it's trying to say, yeah, there's stuff that could go wrong. There's risks. We need to be mindful of that. But what could go right? You know, if this works, what does this look like? How much better could this be for our company? How much better could this be for our customers, for people who want to be our customers, but haven't, haven't been able to do so yet? And when you reframe it that way, it starts to open up the possibilities and it's pretty compelling. Exactly. I mean, I think that's it with everything. That What you just said is it. It's just... Look at it through the positive and look at through it, look at it through your own values. And like you will be expressing your values in every decision you make. And so sometimes it's harder to do something in line with your values if it's new or has a stigma or whatever. And and if you can figure out that way of doing it, usually it increases the level of success. But if it doesn't succeed, at least you didn't sacrifice on your values, you know? Like it's much easier to live with if it doesn't work too. The hardest things are if you go against your instincts and then it doesn't work out. And you're like, well, that sucked. <laughs> you know, that's a brutal, that's a brutal mistake versus trying something 
you followed your instincts, it doesn't work, you can at least say, well, at least I followed my instincts. Yeah. Now, just to to get a couple of tactical questions in here about the other sort of customer-facing sides of your organization. So if we think about support and success, you know, and then the size of your user base, the size, the number of customers that you guys have, how do you scale success and support? I mean, is it a one-to-one thing? Is it one-to-many? Is it more of an automated approach? Walk us through kind of the evolution of that. It's a mix of things. So, you know, if you're writing into support, then there's oh, there's always going to be people on this side who are writing back to help. And the way that we've tried to scale support over time is just make our knowledge base and our materials that you can you can find answers to the questions you have really quickly, and the answers are really good. And just simply doing that and having really good communication with product means that we end up fixing things in product that are broken or confusing or what have you. And so we're able to like keep the volume of tickets somewhat under control, even as the number of customers goes up quite a bit. And then with success, we look at basically it's a little bit more zeroed in on size of customer, size of company, and it tends to be more related to the type, the aspects of the product that you're touching and using. So there are parts of Wistia that are more complicated. For example, our marketing automation integrations, like really understanding how to do that properly, understanding, having someone understand on the HubSpot side, are things set up well? Are you looking at the data and making good decisions on that? Is your team changing what they're doing based on those decisions? Those are the types of things that success will help somebody with that are more complicated. And it's not just about like, what does the video look like on my website? Or what does the engagement for one video look like? And so it's basically an ongoing evolution, actually, of like where those lines are. And we are constantly trying to figure out, like, can we take this part of the product that's complex and make it more simple? And then it can go through for everybody, can just use it. And if you have a question about it, support will be able to answer it quickly. Or is it something that's more complex that we need to make sure that our success team is ready for from the get-go and is proactively trying to teach people about it? Any key mistakes you've made in trying to scale support to a large customer base that you can help others prevent uh, you know, from, from stubbing their toe in the same way? Yeah, the, the mistakes that we've made with support have usually been under hiring, where things are totally under control and we feel really good. And then too many people go on vacation at the same time and one person quits and suddenly we have, our, our, we have a huge backlog and it takes us like a month to dig out to get back to like very fast response times. We've made that mistake a couple times over the years. And it was when we weren't really looking properly enough at the ratios of like, what are the ratios of people and distribution of hours that we need to have people available to answer questions such that we're always getting back to customers quickly. And when things are good and you lose sight of those ratios is when I think you start to run into problems. So I would say, That is like something that we've definitely made a mistake on and and really learned from. And then the other thing is really making sure that you're exposing people on those teams to other opportunities that are not just within support because doing frontline support work is really hard. And you also, you know, learn an enormous amount about a product and a company through doing that. And so we're always trying to think like, how do we balance those two things of like, Having response times be really good, helping people get outside of the inbox, helping them work on other projects, helping them try to figure out like what their career should be. And because I think that's 
as you build a bigger organization and have more people in those roles, those are those are things that you have an opportunity to really help more people if you can think through those problems. Yeah, definitely. So I guess as we close out the episode here, I want to circle back all the way to the beginning of our conversation and talk about discovery and some of the things you guys do from a marketing standpoint in order to drive additional discovery and to also communicate you know, the value as well as the brand message of Wistia. And, and I know there's a number of interesting things you've done you know, recently. So maybe highlight 110, 100, and then you know, anything else you guys have uh, coming up that we should know about. Yeah, so 110100 was a project that we released at the end of last year that I'm super excited about where we worked with Sandwich Video. They're one of the best video production agencies in LA and they are kind of famous for making launch videos for tech products. So they, when Slack launched and they had a video describing what Slack does, Sandwich made it. When Warby Parker launched, Sandwich made it. When Square launched, like Sandwich made their launch video. And we worked with Sandwich and we gave them a budget of $111,000 and they created three ads for us at different budgets. So they made a $1,000 ad for Soapbox, a $10,000 ad and a $100,000 ad. And the idea was you could see what are the decisions that someone would make creatively and from a production perspective if you had those different budgets and were tasked with making a 30 second ad for a product or a minute long ad. And so we were really excited to work with Sandwich on this project. And then as a part of this, we actually shot the behind the scenes of how they produced these ads at different budgets and how they thought about the creative process. And so we released a documentary. It's a four-part documentary. It's an hour and 40 minutes long, which is insane. seems like quite a long thing and quite the opposite of like the normal web video that we brought out in theater and then released on our site and is now on Amazon Prime. So if somebody wants to watch, I guess, both the ads as well as the documentary series, they just go to your site, they go to Amazon, they search for what? Yeah, if they go to Amazon, you search for Wistia, you'll find it. If you go to our site, you can even just type in wi.st slash series and you'll and you'll get to it. Or I think you can hit the drop down from series on the top and you can go see it. It's one of the things I'm like most proud of and really excited about because it's the idea is that we made something that is so in-depth and engaging, the goal being that it's in-depth and engaging for marketers and video producers who care about these types of creative risks that they would actually want to watch this at night or on the weekend. The crazy thing is we've actually seen that, that people will watch this like instead of watching the Fire Festival documentary or whatever the thing is that is the current other thing vying for their attention. That makes a lot of sense. That's great. And are there additional seasons or series that you guys have that are coming up? Yes. Yeah, so we have some new things that are coming out starting pretty soon, the next couple months. And we're working on what the, the next big thing will be that will be coming out later this year. We've definitely seen for us making this documentary and pushing ourselves to take these, the creative risks of the whole project has just turned into this like incredible thing. And I think that it's something that we're going to see a lot more brands doing. I mean, even just two days ago, MailChimp released two original video series that they produced. So it's something that's starting to happen. I'm excited to see where to see where it goes. Yeah, it's also kind of back to one of the topics that you had said uh, earlier, which is, you know, because of how you guys have built your your company and, you know, your values and the type of business that you're building, being profitable, being independent, it allows you to move forward with things that are bigger creative risks. And this is a perfect example and it totally paid off. I mean, it's for anybody that hasn't seen it, watching the three ads back to back to begin with, because it's the same ad, just with different production levels. 
it's amazing. So check that out and then check out the series thereafter. And we're really excited, Chris, to see what you guys have in store for us in 2019. So thanks for coming on the show. This has been awesome. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you won't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. And you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do this by going to openviewpartners.com newsletter. See you next time.